Welcome to the Free Speech Union Podcast. I'm Dane Giroux. Our guest today is Peter Rowley. Peter Rowley is a New Zealand comic actor and writer. He's best known for his many television roles, where he has played mostly a comic foil or or straight man, to comedians such as the great Billy T. James and the great David McPhail and John Gadsby. Uh, Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Dane. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Maybe we should just start with, because I I learned something off you yesterday um, when we did our like pre-interview call, which I found interesting, because I'd always had it in my head that uh, Billy T. was fighting the senses all the time. But you corrected me on that and said that that wasn't quite the case. Well, yeah, I mean, fighting the senses actually used to occur um, towards the end of the 70s when I was working on the satirical series, uh, a week of it. Um, we, we we got a memo, I think it was about 1979, um, saying that we weren't allowed to do any uh, a political satire during elections because we had uh, too much of an, an effect um, on the general sort of psyche of the country. And we got an official, you know, uh, a memo from the government uh, saying we weren't allowed to, um, and which I found quite interesting. And, in fact, I remember once I used to play Bill Rowling, the... Uh, uh, leader of the opposition uh, during Muldoon's reign. And um, I remember once being approached by his daughter at a pub while I was dancing, and she said, uh, are you Peter Rowley? I said, yes. She said, my name is um, Cynthia Rowling, I think it was. Um, I just want you to know that you're hugely responsible for my father's political demise. Oh, no. I was gobsmacked. Um but but that was satire. Now, when I worked with Billy, um, it, it, we didn't do satire. We just did general comedy, you know, um, poking fun at history, poking fun at, you know, uh, different races, that poking fun at just about everything. But um, there was no um, approach by anybody uh, to, you know, for us to sort of pull our heads in or anything. We just carried on and we were fine. And that was throughout the 80s, 85 to 88. So with the Billy, we should go back to David McPhail and and, um, John Gadsby's show, actually, because that, a week of it, like that was quite an innovative um, uh, show, wasn't it? How was that put together? Well, basically, um, David McPhail, who was uh, a journalist, um, television presenter, uh, used to do town and around little sort of snippets after the news and you know uh, that sort of thing and he he um, had an edge towards comedy so he went to the powers that be and said he wanted to do a satirical show based on the English show The Week That Was and um, so obviously very topical I mean I, re- I remember um, you know um, walking towards the set and uh, uh, having learnt the script, and and someone would rush up to me, whip the script out of my hand, and say, "Here, there's been a few changes made because something had happened a few hours ago." You know what I mean? And um, it, it, it was quite interesting, and and we it, it was very topical in that 
um, when we finished recording at the Civic Theatre in front of a live audience, uh, um, the the uh, director, Tony Holden, would rush over to Telecine and put these big tapes on. And about half an hour after we finished recording, it went to air. So it was very fresh, very, you know, it was on the money. Um, David's, everybody used to get excited because David did a good Muldoon. Um, and David absolutely hated Muldoon and was very, very upset when he heard that Muldoon actually liked his portrayal. <laughs> you know, um, so yeah, uh, but but Billy and I didn't do topical stuff. We just did timeless comedy. You know what I mean? When I thought about why I I thought the censors were 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 hot on Billy's tail, because you know back at that time we still had stars on Sunday and and shows like that, like <laughs> the Anglican Church actually. <laughs> Had quite a stake in broadcasting back then, so maybe I just made that connection in my mind. But uh, Billy T. James today is seen as non PC, um, and I, maybe because of that, people think that he was he really had something to prove, or he really had a point to make politically with what he was saying. But well, how would you respond to that? Was there a political dimension to Billy T. James's comedy? Absolutely not. Um, we. We were very similar in some respects, which is why we clicked, I suppose, um, in that, um, you know, uh, why not portray things, you know, uh, um, as they really were, like him doing Tay News and talking like that day. Um, a lot of people, not a lot of people, a few people in Auckland uh, objected, you know, to him using that accent. But if you go out into the uh, countryside, that's, you know, normal. That's a normal New Zealand dialect. Um, you know, uh, and why, you know, why not do it? You know, because that's what you see. And it would be very remiss of us to be, you know, of sweeping things under the carpet. Because as I said to you yesterday, you know, we followed the um, the tradition set by the court jesters in Henry VIII's day where they told the truth and they didn't lose their heads. Um, but they were the only one in the court that could tell the truth. All right. Um now, zip to this day in, in, in life, now we have, you know, um, uh, hate speech is sort of a, on the agenda and you're not allowed to say this and you're not allowed to say that. And if you object to something, even constructively, you're judged as a racist and all that sort of thing. Um, Billy and I, we, we didn't really sort of care. We just wanted laughs. That's all it was. There was no hidden agenda. It was just, oh, um, Captain Cook's, you know, finishes thing. Uh, you know, we want. I want to buy this land, and for this land, I'm going to give you six barrels of gunpowder, some axe heads, some beads for your women, some tobacco for your men, glue for your children, because solvent abuse was quite big. Glue for your children. How say you, savage? You know, um, and Billy's rep reply cancelled uh, what Captain Cook said by going, "What." Haven't you got any money? You know, um, you see what I mean? Uh, we always cancelled anything with his ability at responding and people loved it because, you know, I was the white fall guy, as you said earlier on, and that's how it worked. And really, at the end of the day, there was virtually no objections from anybody about what he did. And it's because everybody loved him. 
you know, he was cheeky, sometimes even childish, uh, uh, but hugely talented, you know, like a very talented man. And had that lovely sort of, you know, little boy persona with that, you know, getting away with stuff, you know what I mean? You guys were after heavy damage, and heavy damage to me is is the jokes that, you know, you're not content with a titter. You're really swinging for the fences. You want a six. It's a six off every ball, right? You, you, you don't want one run. You're not interested in that. that that's just not going to win you the game. You want a six off every ball. And that's the way these jokes still come across to this day. And I think that maybe people think they're political because they have that wallop. At the end of the day, it was all about ratings. There were only three television channels, remember? Um, <clears throat> it was all about ratings. And, you know, for us to continue doing what we love doing, which was writing and performing comedy, uh, we had to keep the ratings up. So we went for, you know, bat swinging comedy. We went for, uh, you know, as, as much as we could. Um, uh, and and the, the great thing was that Billy um, had uh, an amazing uh, a, he was a brilliant actor. Um, we all found that on Came a Hot Friday. He was very nervous about that film, but he stole the picture. Um, uh, and and his, you know, accents. I mean, he's uh, when he was doing an Irish accent, for instance, um, and talking like that, you forgot he was a Maori because he did it so well. Um, you know, or American for crying out loud, uh, it, it, he did it so well. So. There are times when people forgot um, it was actually Billy. He was playing a character, but playing it so well, he sold it. And um, hopefully, uh, you know, I was kind of up there with him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have, you know, hired me. Um, and and so we we supported each other really well to sell things convincingly, which is why we insisted with the wardrobe and art department TVNZ cause a lot of friction, that everything be played authentically. Like, get away from vaudevillian bloody spinning bow ties and pink pantaloons, and if we're playing Captain Cook and, and the Māori people, they should be dressed the way they would have been dressed. Not, mm. you know, uh, we felt that the words, the situation and the words were, were the humour, not the appearance. And sketch comedy, I've, I've written a bit of sketch comedy, it's actually very, very hard. Um, because often you don't know, you can have a great idea for a sketch and you, and you don't quite know how to end it. (laughs) But I guess with you guys, there were punchlines, weren't there? Like it was really clear. Yeah. Um, it's got a meter. It's, you know, da-dum, 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 boom, you know, and that hopefully that boom at the end, uh, is not what the audience expects. You see what I mean? Uh, and so you, you, Quickly turn a corner uh, on the punchline, and that's where the, the comedy you can catch people off guard. That's where, where it, you know, like uh, for instance, where did I get my bag? And everybody has seen, you know, lands for bags, yeah. lands for bags, of course. Or we did sketches uh, with, with, you know, in certain endings. Um, when Billy did that, you know, I pushed it, and that cheekiness again, that little laugh just swung around a corner and the audience just loved it. Oh, that, that's one of my favourite ones. And it's mm-hmm. and it's, it would be considered controversial today, but just for a bit of context 
for um, some listeners who may not have been around, um, Lands for Bags was like a ba- you know l- luggage store, and, and the the advert that they had was a very elegant woman walking up to camera and saying, "Where did I get my bag? Lands for Bags, of course." And of course, Billy's version, as Peter just said, was <laughs> a Maori man walking up and going, "Where did I get my bag? I pinched it," and then laughing. And uh, and again, when I first saw that, I remember first seeing that. Like that, I, I I remember the first memory of of ever seeing that. Yeah, it was so funny and so unexpected. It was like someone had picked up a dead fish and just whacked me across the head with it. Like that was what the punchline was like. I mean, you know, we we weren't intellectual, we weren't cerebral, and a lot of our humour was pretty basic. Like you know, the Tay News. Last night, some thieves stole the loose from a Kakoi police station. The cops are consent because they've got nothing to go on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. uh, but he, 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 as I said before, he sold it. He mm. sold it every time. Everybody loved his, uh, you know, his his look, his face, that lovely, cheeky, smiley, naughty Maori lad. You know what I mean? Mm, mm. So, so I was quite interested to hear you talk uh, yesterday about that lens for bags um, gag and how it wasn't scripted at all. Is that correct? No, no. We we were doing like the, one of the uh, lens for bags gags we did was uh, Bruce Allpress and Annie Whittle coming out of uh, the store, and um, uh, Bruce says, uh, "Where did I get my bag? Oh, I met you in a pub, didn't I, dear? You know." Um, <laughs> So we were doing cheeky stuff like that. And then Billy, just uh, while we were in the street shooting it, he said, hold on, I've got one. And he said, Rowley, grab that wig. So I gave him uh, this wig. He put on a pair of sunglasses, grabbed one of the crew members' backpacks, and we told Billy, look, just, you know, shoot this. Um, and he walks up the camera, and the rest is history. Wow. That's, so there was uh, that's really interesting. And there's another very classic uh, iconic sketch from uh, of Billy T's that you were telling me was also basically improv, and that was the one about the um, uh, the <laughs> how to, how to roll a joint. Yes, yeah, Saturday morning talk. We were doing all sorts of uh, things. Uh, you know, two um, uh, kids uh, TV presenters, um, John and Ashley. Hello, John. Hello, Ashley. What are we going to do today? We're going to talk to uh, you about how to use. A telephone. And anyway, we had a break in the filming and we're sitting there having our lunch on set. And um, I said, Billy, you know, this is Saturday morning talk. What what if, you know, the parents are still in bed because they had a bit of a party in the living room the night before and there's, you know, stuff lying around, flotsam and jetsam from the party, bottles, bits of this, bit of that. Maybe there's a, a you know, bag of dough uh, lying there and some papers. Uh, so let's teach the kids to, um, you know, a r- roll a joint, and they, they they send it in, you know, as as part of a competition. And he said, uh, "Yeah, hey, I really like that. Um, and what if we um, just create a hat, you know, and uh, and uh, just we're both cracking up at it." And mm. and then I said, "Oh yeah, and and there's a prize for the biggest hat, right?" And so we went over to Tony. And said, "Look, we've got a, uh, uh, another script, but it's actually in our heads. We've got a beginning, a middle, and an end, and we know where it's at." He said, "Well, I've got three cameras. I need a shot list." You know, I said, "Well, 
why don't you just lock the middle camera off in an MCU, a medium close-up of the two of us sitting there with all the stuffed toys and our silly jerseys, and tell camera one and three to to get ready for close-ups of what we were doing on the table. You know, all right, then. So we shot it. One take. One take. And wow. uh, it, 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 it was magic. And, I mean, I, I don't know how many hundred thousand hits it's got on YouTube, but everybody just loved it. Took a while, took a while to convince them to put it to air, but they finally did. Oh, really? So that was one that they thought, hmm, because that would have been what, 83 or? No, 86. 86, okay. Um, yeah, so there was a bit of hesitancy for that one. Yeah, teaching kids how to roll a joint, but not smoke it. It's, <laughs> not smoke it, no. No, 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 no. It's a hat. And look, even today, sometimes I'm walking down the street and there is somebody from the next generation who's obviously seen it on YouTube. And I, there's a toot and someone yells out, you got any hats? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great compliment, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. It's fantastic. I mean, that is, that, isn't that fantastic? You know, someone to recognize you and, and want to talk about a gag that you did. And yeah. Know, it's, that's wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff. Mm. It's a, a one take because that's quite a long. That's quite a long gag, isn't it? I mean, it goes on for quite a while. Yeah, but but really, when you think about it, it's easy to because it takes the process. It's the first, you know, pull out one paper, you know, and then you realise there's a sticky licky bit, and so you pull out, and that's an oblong. You pull out another paper. It's a square. Does yours look like that? What do we do now, Ashley? So, and you do it like that. Do it like. Uh, it's a children's, you know, program, but it's rolling a bloody joint, you know, and and uh, we got away with it. Yeah, it's played so straight. I think that's oh, yeah. a big part of the, the comedy in it. Very sincere as children's pre- presenters are, you know. Yeah. yeah. You know, maybe camera three can get a close-up of that, you know. <laughs> and we just threw stuff in uh, and, and it just worked, yeah. So, so what were some of... Um, your comic influences and, and, and Billy's comic influences? Because I guess that Betty Hill was very, I mean, his sketches had a similar sort of shape to them often. It was mainly um, British television. But then again, you know, uh, uh, if an American television show was popular, we lampooned that like uh, Miami Vice and we called it Two Rangy Vice. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, we, we, we did that sort of thing. It was, what what was on television from overseas? We sometimes did a New Zealand version of, you know, and uh, that worked very well. But but I guess like especially when when he would have started making those shows, you had your Benny Hills, you had Dick Emery, and people like that, like that comic star who was playing all sorts of different characters, and that's what we got from from his shows and the shows that you did with him. Um, was I mean he did a sitcom much later with. Uh, uh, actress I knew, young Willa O'Neill was in it. That was good. That actually was a very, I thought that was a strong show. Um, Unfortunately, but it, it didn't rate that well. And people, uh, uh, yeah, um, didn't quite clock onto it like they did a sketch show sort of thing. Yeah, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Maybe they just accepted him as a sketch sort of comedian and, and it was harder to make that transition in their minds. But I also think it was the script. And I think um, John and David had a lot to do with the writing of it. And, you know, all due respect to them, I just don't think it really hit the mark 
Uh, I was in an episode of that too. Um, uh, but, yeah, it's sort of uh, – I think what made Billy and I work was from eight, 1985 uh, to 80, late 87, I, I used to live at Billy's house when we were writing. And uh, as mm. I told you, I got a phone call a while back from Ruby, his daughter, who said it was she had the most wonderful uh, little slice of life in her childhood. Uh, she'd get up in the middle of the, ni- the middle of the night to go to the toilet, and she said, time and time again, I hear raucous laughter of you and Dad in the living room writing. And wow. uh, she said that was a wonderful memory, and uh, I, you know that that was one of the indicators of of the success that we had because we had that sort of closeness. It wasn't, you know, done in an office. It was done in his living room sort of thing. So you, you'd write it. Would there be a, um, I mean, you'd, you would have done a table read and everything and tested some of the gags, you know, brought other people into the process after you'd done your first drafts and, and everything? Very. Towards the end, we, you know, I think we started getting a bit exhausted because we were the only two writers, and they brought in one or two other people, and eh, it's sort of, yeah, the magic sort of started to dissipate. It's a bit like Spike Milligan had that nervous breakdown in 1960 because Peter Sellers pressured him to write more of The Goon Show, and he was the only writer, and he just couldn't, you know, he went to mental hospital. Um not saying that Billy and I uh, uh, headed in that direction, but um, you know we we had to start getting a bit of help because we were fooey, you know, to keep it up there, to keep the uh, and you know a lot, we just start, we should have probably stopped like Cleese did with Faulty Towers, you know, just to, mm. don't try and push it, let's stop there, you know, um, uh, but we didn't, and and it table reads, yeah. Um, uh, and towards the end, we got a, a, a very, very lacklustre director. I won't name him, but, uh, you know, he, he was just, at least Tony Holden had good comedy timing, you know, because in the editing, you know, that's a lot of it, in sketch stuff, it's editing. Ed- editing can kill or enhance the uh, timing. Oh, well, look, this is, I'm going to rant now. But <laughs> my big issue with to, to this day with with comedy in this country is the editors and the editing. Yeah. Um, like I, I, there was a show that I wrote on, and um, it wasn't quite going in the direction that I wanted it to go, and I could feel the director was going to tone it down and pull it in a certain way. And I thought that's cool. I've been paid. I'm uh, my job is done. So you know, so I I left, and I didn't see it for quite a while. But and and because I just thought it's probably not going to be great, but I sat down to it actually only about a month ago, and um, uh, and I was looking at it, and I thought there's good jokes here, but I'm not laughing out loud. Why is that? And it's because the timing, the editing yeah. was just it was edited like a drama. Some punchlines were were um, delivered over reaction shots and things. It was just. I mean, it's, there's a real art to the edit, and I don't think many people here have got that. No. We, Billy and I were very confident with uh, Holden's editing. Mm. Uh, uh, then we got a new director uh, who was so bad, I got thrown out of the editing suite. Wow. <laughs> so I said, you fucking, you know, you're, yeah. you're blowing it. This is just ridiculous, you mm. know. Uh, but no, no. 
But, and that's another thing too. I got I was very unpopular at TVNZ because um, I, I was kind of sort of Billy's Rottweiler as well. Um, you know, it, it, often I'd arrive on set and he's in the makeup uh, uh, bus and uh, you go, uh, morning, bro, have you been down to set? And I go, nice, go and have a look. And I go down there and uh, it, it was all wrong. Uh, and because when Billy and I wrote the sketches, we would write footnotes for uh, art department and for the wardrobe department. But back then, you, actors don't do that. Once again, like editors, it's their interpretation of the script, you know, it's art department's interpretation, and, and they, they were ignoring what we were uh, suggesting. Uh, and so I would go down and go, no, not, that's not going to happen. You know, uh, how do you, know, you, you can't say that. And TVNZ said at one stage, in about 87, I think it was, um, we, we want to get rid of Rowley. Um, and Billy said, well, no, actually, if he goes, I go. Uh, and and that was because of our insistence, well, my insistence, because Billy wouldn't. Billy was a very non-confrontational person, whereas I didn't give a damn, especially if it was uh, to do with, you know, the essence of our creativity and getting, and, it, getting it right, yeah, getting it the way we wanted it. Um, and, and that that was a real problem. Their interpretations were based on tradition as opposed to what was actually put in front of them. Mm. So um, David McPhail, uh, who I worked with, actually, because I think that you and I, you got your start at the Court Theatre, didn't you? Yeah, I was the stage manager there sort of uh, 74, 75, 76. Because mm, my first professional gig was a, was as an actor at the Court. So we <laughs> we have that in common. Yeah. Um, and uh, this one of the, the second play I did was with uh, was a comedy, a very broad comedy. Um, and it was directed by David. And, you know, I was a bit starstruck at the time because I was in my 20s and he was directing me. And, um, and but, you know, I'd just come out of drama school and I had a Shakespeare training, so I thought I was pretty hot shit, you know. Um, <laughs> but, boy, I knew nothing about comedy. And I learned that real quick. Like I was trying to talk. I mean, I, I didn't expect the waves of laughter coming from the audience and, it was like I was being hit with a frying pan in the face every three beats. Um, and I was trying to talk over it and the more experienced actor was like, you know, you know, just give it a beat, let them keep laughing. They're laughing. Why do you want to stop them? And I'm like, but boy, that was an education, but he was a lovely man, David. Like he was such a nice guy and and so smart and um, and he directed us so well in that. But um, he, he did say something interesting to me about Muldoon um, and and that because you said earlier that he didn't, didn't like Muldoon. I don't think many people in the arts probably did. Um, but he said that because people loved loved his Muldoon, he worried that it made people appreciate the real Muldoon in a different way. Like they, they started seeing him as a bit cuddly, you know, because of what David had created. And he thought, oh, oh you know, I've unleashed this beast or something, you know. I've found that really funny. The interesting thing is is that uh, David hated Muldoon and was very upset when he was told Muldoon really liked uh, David's portrayal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, in fact, uh, Billy and I used Muldoon as a gangster uh, on on Two Ringy Vice. How was that? Can you talk us through that, Dave? Well, uh, 
um, oh, I, I struggle to remember the sketch, but um, it, um, he was bloody good. He was he was really good, and um, we had two large um, island uh, actors uh, as his uh, minders, you know, his henchmen. And um, he, he was very good. And, and I just, for the life of me, it's gone from me now. Age is creeping in, Dean. Yes. Um, uh, uh, but I remember it was, you know, and he played it really well. I think he quite liked the fact that he was a gangster and uh, um, probably suited some of his political leanings as well, I suspect. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, he, he, he was good. Um, and I met him also, we did uh, a live stage show at the Ace of Clubs in Auckland, a week of it on stage, and uh, uh, he came backstage and, and uh, met us. And it was very funny because um, whilst we were doing the show, uh, I could always remember the sort of, you know, ha, ha, laughter, laughter, and then he had finally hear this trail off of, ah, ah. <laughs> and uh oh, and you know, am I hearing things? And is that the prime minister in the audience? And it certainly was. And um, one of his uh, guards came and checked checked out my part of the the uh, you know makeup room. And then David came running in and said, the "Prime minister wants to meet you." And so I went out the back, and he was with Thea and a couple of uh, big fellows with bulges under their armpits. Um, and uh, uh, David said, oh, Prime Minister, th this is uh, Peter Rowley. He plays Bill Rowling. And he said, ah, yes. Well, you didn't have much to say. And he doesn't either. Does he say Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> and, and everybody sort of laughed nervously. Um, yeah. uh, he was quite a formidable character. I'll never forget looking at the size of his noggin. He had what, like a huge head. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, quite a strange-looking fellow, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He, um, I mean, he was he was pretty game when he retired, wasn't he? He did like the Rocky, wasn't he? The narrator, yeah, the, the Rocky horror show, narrated that, and um, <laughs> you know, happy to appear with Billy T, and and you know, and and he did the Sunday horrors. Remember the Sunday horrors? That's that right. had, mm. Did wasn't he the narrator for a little bit? Yes, he was. Yeah. I mean, that is. I mean, think about Helen Clark doing that now. <laughs> yeah. But I, I met her as well. I did a, a play at the court theatre called Ying Tong about Spike Milligan's nervous breakdown in 1960. Oh. And uh, uh, Helen w was the Prime Minister uh, then, and she came backstage and uh, asked to speak to me. I was playing Harry Seacombe, and um, mm -hmm. and she uh, we, we had this really cool chat, and she was very knowledgeable about the goons, Spike Milligan, Peter Sellers, Harry Sick. She was very knowledgeable. So I was very impressed, actually. And, uh, um, yeah, that was my experience with Helen. Yeah, that, well, the goons are incredible. I, I, I used to do a paper round back in South Auckland in Otahu, and I'd, uh, I'd buy goons records with, um, with it. And I always loved Peter Sellers. I mean, yeah. he was, just, to me, just such a master. Um, yeah. I mean, that was incredible stuff, wasn't it? I I. I I didn't quite realise until recently that George Martin, you know, that the Beatles producer, did most of those Goons albums. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And the other inter interesting thing, Michael Palin said, if it wasn't for Spike Milligan and the Goons, uh, who, who Spike Milligan was the first to introduce absurdity to uh, English humour. Um, before then it was, you know, um, 
bloke walks into pub, sort of stuff, you know, mm. uh, or, or Bernard Manning, you know. Bernard Manning, I was going to say, yeah. You know, my wife's so fat yeah. that when she takes the knickers down, a bum stays in them, you know, that, that sort of <laughs> stuff, you know. Um, yeah. uh, and and, and along came Spike, who introduced absolute bloody absurdity. And mm. that was the founding for for the Python people. Yeah, it, it's it's a shame that Spike Milligan is not really brought up and as much now. Like he's he's a name you don't hear as much as you would a Peter Sellers, or maybe because Peter Sellers had such a um, long uh, Hollywood career. Um, but no, I mean Spike was a really, and I mean you know he he did that bad Jelly the Witch he did like was a yeah. big part. Our, all our childhoods too, you know, like for our gen, us generation X's, mm. and and, and um, a manic depressive. Yeah, you know what I mean. Interesting, isn't it? Um, it, so many were. I mean, there were sides to Billy that nobody uh, knows about. There was a uh, with all that creative energy and power that he had. You know, it, you can imagine. You know the. Uh, you know, it's the same with David McPhail. There were sort of little dark areas. And that's, you know, we all hear about the sad clown and all this sort of thing and what drives people towards comedy. Because comedy is the hardest. That's that's the hardest. Um, a famous actor whose name has uh, slipped my mind was interviewed on his deathbed. And the, the uh, interviewer said, are you scared about death? And he said, no, comedy's harder, you know. <laughs> Um, it, it, it's because there are no parameters. It either works or it doesn't. Whereas if you're doing drama, there's a wee bit of a gap. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to. Uh, it doesn't have to be so finite. Whereas comedy does. It either works or it doesn't. That's it. You know, um, it, it's the toughest of the lot. Which, uh, which is why you know we we hail people like Robin Williams who. Uh, uh, it gets a, an Oscar for for drama. You know what I mean. Um, mm. uh, it, it's drama's easier. In fact, when I was over in Australia a few years ago, I did quite a, you know I did Doctor Blake Mysteries and a few other uh, drama shows because they didn't know me from a bar of soap, and I wasn't typecast. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so uh, I, I got drama work. You know, fight scenes, all sorts of stuff. Um, but over here, oh no, no, he, he's in comedy. You know, because it's a small industry, so no, no, yeah. he, he, that's what he does. Um, yeah, it's interesting that that uh, uh, you know a lot, a lot of people don't realise that comedy is actually the most serious uh, of the performing arts, in my view. Um, you know, because you've got to get it right. You've got to be very precise. Exactly, um, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that, that. That's right. I, I had a frustrating read through one time where, you know, everyone was laughing and, and things are going well. And I thought, well, this is fantastic, you know, like, because I mean, again, you know, because our budgets here are so small, I was sort of the only writer on it, you know, mm. which you don't really want to be, you know, you, you, no, want, God, no. No, yeah. you need a foil. You need it because it expands and expands and expands between minds. Um, Unless you're an absolute genius like Spike Milligan and yeah. you do it on your own, but even he, as I said before, got exhausted. Well, well, well yeah. Well, what, what happens is I find that you, um, 
by episode three, even, you know, you're sort of skidding on ice a little bit and you really got to find a second wind from somewhere. It's mm. that's why the tables I've used tables a lot because I bring those comic minds around those tables then and just say, tear it to shreds guys. And let's put it back together again. And I sort of, in a way I sort of cheat by doing that because yeah. we can't afford to have, you know, the writers alongside me all the way through a process. But at this table, everyone's laughing and it's going well. And I'm thinking, few you know because i didn't think it was my best work you know so it was really i felt great when everyone was so warm but then a guy got up and said look we're all laughing and that's great but comedy is easy where's the heart and i thought oh i'm gonna have to walk out of this room because it could be violence <laughs> it's like oh, comedy is that oh my god no, no no it's you know it, it's but then again you know, it's like a lot of things in life. Keep it simple, stupid, um, you know, uh, and don't overdo it. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's like a, a lovely gag. We did um, a Western thing and we came up with it. It wasn't scripted. Um, it was a Western one and Billy's sitting on the horse and I, I'm coming up behind and I say, hey, Billy, give us a lift, mate. And he turns around, picks, lifts the tail up and says, hop in the boot. <laughs> I mean, how simple is that? Yeah. Very funny, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, uh, he so he can always sell that. He can sell it beautifully, you know. What I find interesting about Billy T, I I like to think I'm influenced by him because I I, I think about him when I write stuff, and, and my and my stuff it tends to be a bit broader. You know, sometimes I have to pull it in for different jobs because I get a bit too crazy. But I, I try to, I try to, you know, I, I try to swing for the fences too. You know, that that's my um, mentality with it. But um, I, you know, a lot of people might claim to be influenced by the work that you guys did, but I, I haven't really seen it in a lot of the work post Billy T. James. Well, How do you feel about that? I think I think situational comedy. Uh, you know, uh, has arisen uh, from your uh, sketch um, or, or, you know, even stand-up, you know, jokes as opposed to, uh, you know, situation, not situation, but, you know, uh, observational comedy, you know. I walked into this thing the other day and I couldn't believe it, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then this, you know what I mean, as opposed to, um, you know, man walks into bar kind of jokes. And I watched... Um, I got one weekend a while back. I, you know, I wanted to do a bit of research on Billy Connolly, and when he first started doing stand-up comedy, it was all jokes. And then, as you went through the uh, the CDs, you know, rising, uh, you know, in, in sort of chronological order, the jokes started to go, and then it was, you know, uh, crazed. I can't, can't believe how cold it is here in Dunedin. Last night I, I, I was in bed and a wee lump behind my bottom. I pulled it out. It was a cube of ice. I threw it in a fire and it went, <laughs> um, you know, uh, it, it's, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll make a joke about, you know, where, he's, where he is or where he's been as opposed to jokes. And they're all going and, the, the new style, of course, is, as you know, is um, just people talking about everyday life, uh, yeah. you know, uh, et cetera. Um, 
And, and uh, there's some brilliant comedians out there. I mean, you know, um, Ben Hurley's one. Um, you know, some of the guys on Seven Days, fantastic. Uh, and it's a new style. You know, it's a new way of uh, of of doing comedy. And it's uh, yeah, it's not like the old days of the wheel tappers and shunters clubs. You know. Well, I think that um, some of these comedians are finding their ways into shows now too. I notice uh, a chap that I've worked with a bit, I wrote for, um, Pax Asadi. He's got a new show raised by um, refugees on on Prime. And it's, uh, I guess it's like young, young, what's his name? You know, the Chris, the Chris Rock show, young Chris or something. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a bit, I guess it's a bit like that, you know, it's sort of autobiographical and, you know, I mean, he'd be taking license obviously, but, you know, there was a while there where, you know, uh, people would do stand up and then they'd write a column for the Herald. Like they didn't, they didn't develop anywhere further. They didn't, you know, I mean, Raybon Khan never did the the sitcom with him, him as a dad or, or something. Yeah, you know, like that. yeah. That wasn't happening for a while, but I think that's starting to happen now. And well, Max, he, he was a really good actor. and. Um, and we got some really good – I think we did really good work on, on the show we worked on. So, yeah, it's encouraging. Even though, you know, he was a little bit this way, sometimes he didn't like the idea of a punchline. <laughs> you know, um, hat. The, the, the other thing too, Dane, is that I was really lucky uh, being in a an era of funded television. And uh, when that first – reality TV show Cops, you know, bad boys, bad boys, what you going to do? What you going to do when they come for you? When mm. Cops came out, uh, it set in motion a worldwide, uh, you know, a change in television uh, production. And, you know, reality TV was born and the bean counters at, you know, places like TVNZ decided they were going to make just as much advertising revenue out of something that would cost $4,000 an episode as opposed to $80,000 an episode. Yeah, and look, I, I actually, you know, when I first went behind the scenes and uh, I, I worked on a few of them, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, they were slapped together. I know. It was, it <laughs> they was, were slapped together. We talk about precision. This is the opposite. Yes, and mm. but they're still making good money, you see, so yeah. you think, well, that, that's what we're going to do now because, you know, um, it, you know, I think Billy, Billy and I, are, the budget per episode was about 80 plus grand, you know. Um, well, that's pretty good back in the 80s. Yeah, that was knocked on the head as soon as reality TV emerged. And so that's why uh, in this country our local content has suffered because of, uh, I believe, that reason. And good old TV3 for, you know, putting shows on like Seven Days and, you know, uh, uh, but uh, TVNZ has become so politically correct that, you know, I think they're scared to do anything, you know? Yeah. Comedy is healthy. We need comedy. That's why I like Ricky Gervais. He said, no, nothing's exempt. It's the way you deliver it and it's your intention, you know? Yeah, I don't give a damn, you know? And uh, it, it, in this country, people, because of the current climate, have become very nervous about um, you know, what they would really like to do in comedy. Yeah. 
Well, and, and I think the other thing about Billy T, which, you know, we sort of touched on in, in a roundabout way, was like the the, the accent of the rural Māori uh, doing te news and then, you know, people, you know, in the inner city thinking, oh, well, what, this is a stereotype. How, how do you do this? And, and I think this is TVNZ's issue with, with comedy and stuff right now is that, you know, they're not appealing to the working class sort of every man sensibility. It's very hipstery. It's very of a certain sort of um, relatively small audience, you know, like in a city, educated, mm-hmm. uh, university educated, mate, that kind of thing. You know, they're quite, quite soft. It doesn't have the hard edges that a lot of the working class people sort of demand, I think, you know, that we like it a bit more rough and ready. And, and I think that Billy could talk to those people too, you know. it was Billy's appeal was right across the board. Now, you look at the 1981 Springbok debacle with, you know, created a lot of racism and so on in this country and uh, 50% were were for a South African tour, 50% weren't. And, um, you know, uh, it, there was a wee bit of going on because of it. But Billy, in my view, uh, because of his persona, because of his, uh, because he was a Māori, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, he, he, made, he put his arms around everybody. He put yeah. his arms around the entire country and said, come on, you fellas, let's have a laugh at ourselves. And I think he did a lot of healing, um, uh, you know, with his wonderful, lovable, cheeky kind of nature, uh, mm-hmm. uh, television nature. Um, and, you know, uh, in my view, he should have been knighted way before a lot of people who seem to be getting knighted these days um, for, for what he did. And, uh, you know, I remember that when he died, I was I was uh, going to speak at the Wellington uh, Rugby uh, Union uh, Annual Awards Dinner, and there was sort of like 400-plus people there, and um, just before I went on, I was in my hotel room as nervous as hell, as you do, uh, before my comedy bit, um, and uh, there was a news flash, and, but I still had to go on. And mm-hmm. the audience didn't know, of course, because they were in the, the big room, you know. Um, and uh, whilst I was doing my thing, um, I noticed that someone came in and whispered to the chairman. And when I finished, you know, I got a bit of applause, quite good, you know, worked okay. Um, he stood up and said, ladies and gentlemen, I have some terrible news. Um, uh, Pete's mate uh, and ours, Billy T. James, has passed away. And 400-plus people going, oh, was a roar. It was a roar. Yeah. And then the chairman said, and I'd just like to say um, that Peter knew before he came on. And I got a standing ovation. Well, actually, no, I didn't. Billy did. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Mm. Billy got a standing ovation. And it was the most moving thing I've ever experienced in my life. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Um, everybody loved him. Everybody. Mm. You know, women, men, people from all walks of life, they adored him. And, you know, I was so privileged, so privileged and, and lucky to have been in a time frame where he, he and I connected. And, and fortunately for me, he liked what I did and I loved what he did. 
Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Ka kite anō.